Okay, will you please stand with me and turn in your Bibles to Joshua 18. Um, This is going to be an unusual night, similar to last week, except even uh, more. um, A couple weeks in a row here, we're trying to cover multiple chapters at a time. Uh, There are a couple reasons for this. One is that there's a a tremendous amount of of detail. There's a a great deal of space given to a few ideas, but that are are played out with with a lot of detail, especially the names of places, of cities and borders. Remember where we are in the book of Joshua, that Israel has now entered into the promised land, the land that God promised to give them. And they have won many great victories over the um, idol-worshipping inhabitants of that land, the Canaanite peoples, and uh, have begun to displace them um, as the Lord is giving them this land to be their home where his presence is going to dwell with Israel. Now, <clears throat> um, we've, we've come to the place where that land is being carefully divided up among the various tribes, and that work is going to continue here in uh, chapters 18 and 19 with some other details to come in chapters 20 and 21. Uh, Now, we're doing this two weeks in a row with something we otherwise do very rarely, which is we're not going to actually read every word of these four chapters. Um, It is all God's word. It is all authoritative. um, And it's for the sake of time that I'll invite you to read the parts we don't uh, read aloud tonight on your own, another occasion. But I will try to guide you as we work our way through selections from these four chapters. So with that in mind, let's pray once again and ask for God's blessing on his word. Lord, we ask that you would please uh, guide us now as we read the scriptures. Um, Help us to understand uh, what's significant about um, these passages with with these many details that can be a little disorienting. And we pray that you would please um, focus our minds on the things that are most important and help us to see uh, how you are teaching us about yourself and your promises and your provision for your people um, through this important part of the book of Joshua. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Joshua 18, beginning with verse 1. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Provide three men from each tribe, and I will send them out that they may set out and go up and down the land. They shall write a description of it with a view to their inheritances and then come to me. They shall divide it into seven portions. Judah shall continue in his territory on the south, and the house of Joseph shall continue in their territory on the north. And you shall describe the land in seven divisions and bring the description here to me. And I will cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. The Levites have no portion among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage. And Gad and Reuben and half the tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan, eastward, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. So the men arose and went, and Joshua charged those who went to write the description of the land, saying, Go up and down in the land and write a description and return to me. 
and I will cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. So the men went and passed up and down in the land and wrote in a book a description of it by towns in seven divisions. Then they came to Joshua to the camp of Shiloh, and Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua apportioned the land to the people of Israel, to each his portion. The lot of the tribe of the people of Benjamin, according to its clans, came up, and the territory allotted to it fell between the people of Judah and the people of Joseph. After verse 11, there's an extended description of the exact boundaries of Benjamin's territory, verses 12 to 20, and then a list of Benjamin's cities, verses 21 to 28. And that's followed in chapter 19 by a list of the cities of Simeon, verses 1 through 8, Uh, Notably, chapter 19, verse 9, look at that, verse 9, says, The inheritance of the people of Simeon formed part of the territory of the people of Judah. Because the portion of the people of Judah was too large for them, the people of Simeon obtained an inheritance inheritance in the midst of their inheritance. Verse 10, The third lot came up for the people of Zebulun, according to their clans, and the territory of their inheritance reached as far as Sarid, and so follows a description of the boundary and cities of Zebulun, verses 11 to 16, then the tribe of Issachar, verses 17 to 23, the tribe of Asher, verses 24 to 31, the tribe of Naphtali, verses 32 to 39, and then Dan in verses 40 to 48. Um, Importantly for Dan, uh, verse 47 says this, when the territory of the people of Dan was lost to them, the people of Dan went up and fought against Lashem, and after capturing it and striking it with the sword, they took possession of it and settled in it, calling Lashem Dan, after the name of Dan, their ancestor. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Dan, according to their clans, these cities with their villages. In verse 49, when they had finished distributing the several territories of the land as inheritances, the people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. By command of the Lord, they gave him the city that he asked, Timnath Serah, in the hill country of Ephraim. And he rebuilt the city and settled in it. These are the inheritances that Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel distributed by lot at Shiloh before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So they finished dividing the land. Now we will read all of chapter 20. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to, no, he shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give him up, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home to the town from which he fled. So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee, in the hill country of Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. 
And beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland, and from the tribe of Reuben, and Romoth in Gilead, from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan, from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the strangers sojourning among them. Then anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. And now, finally, chapter 21. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites came to Eleazar the priest and to Joshua the son of Nun and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And they said to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, The Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in, along with their pasture lands for our livestock. So, by command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. The lot came out for the clans of the Kohathites. So those Levites who were descendants of Aaron the priest received by lot from the tribes of Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin, 13 cities. And then there are descriptions of other clans of the tribe of Levi who receive cities among other tribal territories. Then there's a list in verses 9 to 40 of the specific cities out of each tribe that were given to the Levites. And then we're going to skip all the way down to verse 41 after all of those detailed place names where it sums up the cities of the Levites in the midst of the possession of the people of Israel were in all 48 cities with their pasture lands. These cities each had its pasture lands around it. So it was with all these cities. And here's the great conclusion of this section. Thus, the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Amen. You may be seated. One of the advantages of preaching through whole books of the Bible is that uh, it gives us as God's people the opportunity to hear from passages that uh, I know, knowing myself, I would never select if I were just going to pick a text out of the air, probably wouldn't be Joshua chapter 19. Uh, oh, I just always wanted to preach on Joshua 19. No. Uh, in fact, sometimes, I was talking to somebody earlier, said, it reminds me, we like to read Going on a Bear Hunt with the kids, Helen Oxenberry version, very charming illustration. Then we say, can't go over it, can't go under it, got to go through it. And that's what we do when we preach whole books of the Bible. Is, is, this is, it's all God's word. It's here for a reason. And the Lord has put this uh, section of his word in our path as God's people for tonight. And so we're going to go through it and find, I hope to show you some uh, riches here, um, that are unique to this portion of Scripture. Now, like I said last time, I'm not promising that I'm going to pull a rabbit out of a hat and convince you uh, that there's just some um, mind-blowing insight in some particular city name here um, and that's just going to amaze you. Uh, in fact, many of these place names um, don't 
get mentioned again in the Bible. Uh, there are places where many people's lives were lived out in the history of God's people, although the key historical moments that get recorded in Bible history don't take place in them. And so it's important for us to see these are important places because they're a part of these inheritances, part of God fulfilling his promise to his people, although many of them we don't know very much about. And that's okay because the point isn't what happened in each of each one of these cities uniquely, but the fact that the Lord is fulfilling his promise, giving them to, to the people. Um, but there are a few details, a few new things in these four chapters that I want to draw your attention to as we look at first the Shiloh survey in chapters 18 and 19. And second, we're going to look at the cities of refuge in chapter 20. And third, the Levite cities in chapter 21. So the Shiloh survey, the cities of refuge, and Levite cities. Uh, First is going to be the Shiloh survey. Now, the most significant thing about chapters 18 and 19 is actually right there at the very beginning in verse 1, where it says, Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. So, okay, why is that significant? Well, here's why. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 12, Israel is about to enter into the promised land. The Lord promises through Moses, listen, Israel, when you, when you go over the Jordan and you live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around, which is exactly what's happened here, the land lay subdued before them, so that you live in safety. See, that's, that's what's come true here. Well, what's going to happen next? He says, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name Dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, etc. This is going to be the place of Israel's worship, the central place where in a special way God is going to make his name dwell. It's going to be the center of Israel's religious life. That's the place they gather to worship God together and experience his covenantal relationship with them as his people. And so the first thing we want to notice is that that vision for Israel's future is beginning, at least, to come true here. Um, There's going to be a further development of this principle in Israel's life. You know that um, later, that place where God chooses to set his name to dwell is going to change. It's going to move from Shiloh to Jerusalem under King David. It's Jerusalem where Solomon's temple is going to be built later. Um, But until the time of David, from now until David, where is the tabernacle? Where is the worship of God centered? Where is the ark going to rest? It's at Shiloh, this place, Shiloh. uh, Shiloh is where uh, Hannah brings the boy Samuel at the beginning of of 1 Samuel. It's it's where Samuel hears God's voice and where he first becomes a prophet just before uh, the stories of Saul and David, the kings. Um, this is the place where God has chosen for a time for his name to dwell. And by his name, when the Bible in the Old Testament refers to the name of God dwelling somewhere, it's talking about the special revelation of God's presence within Israel. God is dwelling in relationship with Israel and revealing himself to them through the signs and symbols of the tabernacle. Okay. 
Now, that location then, Shiloh, really deepens very much the theological significance, the meaningfulness of this land survey that then takes place. This survey is commissioned at Shiloh, and and the surveyors go out from Shiloh, and they return to Shiloh, and Joshua casts lots for those newly surveyed lands at Shiloh. And, And what this communicates is that the Lord is very personally leading and overseeing uh, the, the, the sorting of all these tribes into their very specific new homes. This tribe here, this tribe here. It's all taking place under the Lord's very personal and specific oversight. So the casting of lots, um, we might think of you know flipping a coin or something. It's a way of randomizing the outcome so that it's, it's a fair in a way that everybody can agree on. Right? But that's not what's happening here. The casting of lots is not a way of randomizing the land assortment, uh, the land assignments, like a lottery or something. No, it's, it's quite the contrary. The casting of lots at Shiloh is emphasizing the very personal and sovereign choice of God in sending each tribe to its particular place in his, uh, exactly according to his plan. That means that each of these tribes can know that their portion of the promised land didn't fall to them arbitrarily, that it was custom-tailored to God's particular plan for them. Um, As I mentioned earlier, uh, there will be that later transition from Shiloh to Jerusalem. But even that is not the end of the development of this theme in the scriptures of the place where God's name is going to dwell. There's the shift to Jerusalem, and there's the building of Solomon's temple, and God's name dwells there in the temple, much more magnificent than the tabernacle, much more permanent looking. Although it's not completely permanent, is it, right? Because Solomon's temple ends up getting destroyed a few hundred years later. Israel goes into exile. They come back. They build a new temple, but it's, it's not as magnificent as the old one. And that underlines that, that there's something yet to come, a, a yet greater fulfillment of this principle of God placing his name among his people to dwell with them. And where that ultimately came to fruition is in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the birth of Jesus. Remember how he's called in those that um, in the Gospels, Emmanuel, which means God. With us. You remember how John says that the Word became flesh and dwelt or pitched his tent, or we could say tabernacled among us. See, in Christ, what God was doing is he was causing his name to dwell in Israel in a climactic way. And that's why Jesus compares his own body to the temple when he says, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up again, speaking of his death and resurrection. And why could he say that? It was because Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is that place where heaven and earth come together. That's who Jesus Christ is. Well, then the New Testament goes on and and it describes the church as God's temple. 
Why is that? Well, it's, well, it's because we belong to Christ, and Christ is the, temp- is the true temple. What did Christ do after he ascended into heaven? We, at Pentecost, we've been studying this in Acts, right? How he poured out the Holy Spirit on the church to be his presence among us as his people. Okay. Now, why have I gone through this big sweep of this kind of uh, the long history, the long story from Genesis to Revelation? Well, it's important for us to see that big trajectory across the Bible of this theme of the place where God makes his name to dwell um, so that we can understand what this land survey at Shiloh means for us. So we can properly apply that to ourselves. What, what am I supposed to learn from this, from all, all, this, uh, all these place names and everything? Well, let me take a shot at that. This survey was launched from that place of God's presence. These uh, history-shaping, life-altering assignments for Israelites were made, verse 6, before the Lord our God. Verse 8, before the Lord in Shiloh. The Lord is very present. He's very personally involved in shaping this specific destiny for each of these tribes. You think about where we are today in the history of God's plan. God's presence today isn't revealed now in this kind of localized way like it was at Shiloh anymore. Uh, We don't all have to go to just one city in the Middle East in order to worship God, right? Um, And the reason for that is that God has caused his name to dwell somewhere else. He's caused his name to dwell first in Christ and now in the church of Christ. He's caused his name to dwell with us, among us, because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The church is the place where God has made his name to dwell on earth. And it's in the gathered worship of God's people that heaven and earth have come together. That's what we're experiencing as we gather in the name of Christ at God's call. Um, This is especially visible, by the way, in our baptism, in the Shorter Catechism, we asked, asked that question about baptism earlier. Well, what happens in baptism? God's name, the triune name of God, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, is placed upon a person. God is making his name dwell on you, marking you out as his very own. That's what baptism's all about. And since we share one baptism, God has caused his name to dwell on all of us together, not just on each of us individually. We share in that one baptism that unites us. Okay, so if God's name dwells on you, think about that in light of the way God's providing for Israel here. What does that mean? It means in your life that every detail of your life, just like every detail of these places of Israel's inheritance, every detail of your life, even the little things that seem trivial, even the really hard things that seem just unbearable and confusing, um, the, the great accomplishments in your life, the great blessings that give you so much joy, all of those things, all of those things have been prepared for you by the Lord's perfect and wise and deeply personal plan. They're not arbitrary or random. 
And how do you know that? It was because it all happens in his presence. Before his face, you know, that phrase that Darcy Sproul loves so much, Coram Deo, before the face of God. That's how we all live, all, every moment of our lives. And we're not just talking there about God's omnipresence, that attribute of God. There's that sense in which the Lord is present everywhere without exception all the time because he's infinite. Uh, so we can talk about that on the one hand, but I'm talking about more than that. I'm talking about God's special presence, what we could call his covenantal presence, his closeness to us, not just as God, but as our God. His closeness to us, not just as people, but as his people. And that intimacy and fellowship and communion that he gives to us through his promises. And what that means for us is that like for these tribes and the inheritances they received, that means that your life is not random. It's not ruled by chance and happenstance. It is personally being overseen and nurtured by the intimate and individual care the Lord who is there with you personally and constantly. That means that your whole life story plays out under his watchful and diligent gaze. Well, there are a couple things I just want to note in passing before we leave these two chapters. Um, we've seen in a few places the, the tension in Joshua between the two themes, on the one hand, the, the complete conquest, where God's promises have come to fulfillment. Israel's armies have won the day, they're in control of the field. Uh, but then on the other side of that tension, there, there are signs throughout Joshua that the con- conquest isn't complete and won't ever be exhaustively complete not due to any failure on God's part, but due to Israel's failure to follow up those victories, Israel's failure, their reluctance to go up and take the land that God has given to them. And you can hear that tension, that danger in Joshua's voice in verse 3 when he asks in kind of a admonishing kind of way, how long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? And so once again, in these uh, next seven tribe lists, there's some more evidence that pops up throughout these lists from time to time of that incompleteness of Israel's task. Um, Dan is a great example of this. Chapter 19, verse 47. When the, when the territory of the people of Dan was lost to them, the people of Dan went up and fought against Lashem. And after capturing it and striking it with the sword, they took possession of it and settled in it, calling Lashem Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor. Um, so Dan doesn't really take their, the, the land promised to them here. Um, and there's a little bit more detail about this in the book of Judges, how they end up settling very far away from the land that's outlined here. Uh, uh, Dan is in the very far north of Israel. The cities that are named in chapter 19 are much further to the south, but they don't actually take that inheritance that the Lord gives them. Another kind of curious outlier in this list of tribes is Simeon. Simeon doesn't get its own borders, doesn't get its own... Uh, territory. Instead, it's, it's kind of like uh, like the Vatican City is its own country inside Italy, right? Um, they get their city allotments inside of Judah's borders. And the reason for this uh, is interesting. Actually, it probably goes all the way back to Genesis. In Genesis 34, you remember how Simeon and Levi um, slaughter the people of Shechem. And 
near the end of the book. Uh, Jacob is, blessed, is, is, is going through that long prophecy about each of his sons, and he says about Simeon and Levi, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And so Simeon um, inheriting this, their territory inside Judah's territory is uh, kind of an unexpected turn, but it's, it's fulfilling that very ancient prophetic word. Well, let's go on to chapter 20 now and uh, look at these cities of refuge. Now, the, whole, the whole concept of the cities of refuge is um, not new when it comes to us here in the book of Joshua. They're mentioned back in Exodus 21. Uh, the laws about cities of refuge are really spelled out in Numbers 35, and you can look that up on your own if you're interested in this topic. Um, now, it, it surely seems a little bit odd to our modern sensibilities that they even had this whole institution of the avenger of blood. Um, this would be a, a relative of a person who had died by violence, and that relative had the right, even the responsibility, to uh, bring the perpetrator to justice. And so it was played out in this tribal context through this um, family-based institution uh, in a way quite different from the court system that we're used to. Uh, And you can imagine how if that were completely uh, uncontrolled, that system could very easily result uh, in the great injustice of a a person getting executed um, uh, when they should not be if the avenger of blood made a mistake. The cities of refuge, then, were designed by the Lord to prevent that. Um, And so for... It's important to notice, though, that even for an accidental death, even for an accidental death, the person responsible doesn't just get off scot-free. Their life is being protected, but there still is a consequence for that death that they've caused, however inadvertently. Uh, There's a real somberness. There's a real sense of loss in being basically banished from your home for a period of time and unable to return because you have to live in this city of refuge. It shows how seriously the Lord takes the sanctity of human life, that even for an accidental death, there's still this sobering consequence. But but on the other hand, these cities of refuge also demonstrate the justice and the mercy of God because they're his provision to protect the life of that person who's caused the accidental death. And I think in the big picture then, these cities of refuge represented to Israel as a whole something about the character of God. The Lord wants Israel to understand what he is like. And and he's building these institutions, these places, into their national life, into the landscape of the promised land to embody for them. You could almost say to incarnate aspects of of his relationship to them and of who he is and who he is towards them in love and covenant. Think about the themes you hear over and over in the Psalms, what what God is like for his people, that God is a refuge, that God is a hiding place. He's a place of safety, deliverance, and we're protected under his shadow. God is a place where we can flee and be kept safe even though we are not innocent. That's the thing. 
our lives are being spared by the gracious provision of God, even though we don't deserve it. And I'm inclined to think that is a big part of the purpose in God's plan for these cities of refuge, as he was revealing himself to Israel, not just by telling them about himself, but by showing, by expressing his character in these very dramatic, lived-out ways in the land that he promised. A number of commentators suggest there may be uh, some kind of forward-pointing significance to the, the time limit placed on uh, how long a person would have to stay in one of these cities of refuge. The, the manslayer has to stay there until when? It says, it says, until the death of him who is high priest at the time. And that's at least maybe suggestive that the person with this blood guilt is released from that blood guilt. How? What's the event that releases them from that guilt? It's when the high priest dies. Now, why is that important? Well, the death of the high priest is, is lifting the threat of death that was hanging over that other person. And you can think about how the author of Hebrews in the New Testament sets up the great contrast. How in the Old Testament, you, you typically find the priests having to bring something with them, bring an animal sacrifice to the Lord, not only on behalf of the people, but on behalf of themselves, because they were sinful too, and they needed their guilt taken away. But the author of Hebrews points out that with Jesus, it's different. Jesus didn't bring some sacrificial animal to the cross to present to God to cleanse himself and his people. No, with Jesus, the priest and the sacrifice are one and the same person. The great high priest is the Lamb of God. And he presents himself as the perfect spotless sacrifice to God the Father. And so could it be then, in this amnesty arrangement for the manslayers, that there, there's this hint pointing Israel forward to this idea that the death of the high priest himself could have the power to lift the threat of death from a guilty person. And that's the gospel. The death of Christ lifting the sentence of death that you and I deserve. Finally, we come to chapter 21, the assignment of the Levitical cities uh, scattered all through the other tribes' uh, allotments of territory. I've already said a fair bit in other sermons about God's provision for the Levites, how they weren't going to get a whole territory of their own, how the Lord said um, they were to consider the Lord himself to be their inheritance. And I, I suggested a few weeks ago that this really was pointing all Israel, in a sense, uh, to what the, the entire promised land was really all about. The, the promised land was not an end in itself. It was a means for them to know God, for them to uh, draw near to him in covenantal fellowship. And he was going to express that fellowship and uh, his love towards them through this gift of the land. And we talked then about how we always need to re be reminded not to become so preoccupied with God's gifts that we forget their purpose, which is to bind our hearts closer to the giver of those gifts. And to be enamored, most of all, with knowing and belonging to him, not 
just with all the shiny things that he gives to us. We should want God more than we want heaven. A lot of people want to go to heaven when they die, maybe because they don't want to go to hell, but they don't really want anything to do with God. And if we don't want anything to do with God himself, then we have no share in heaven. Because the whole point of heaven is is that it's the place where God is. It's the place where Jesus Christ is. So if you want to experience the blessing of eternal life, the forgiveness of your sins, of that blessing in the face of death and after death and beyond death and the resurrection, you can't desire that blessing as an end in itself. It's, It's Christ you should be desiring. It's Christ you should be going to because all the promises are found in him. It's knowing him. It's knowing the Lord Jesus. In fact, ideally we should get to the point where we can honestly say that heaven would be distasteful to us unless God is there. That everlasting life would be boring to us unless it's eternal, everlasting life with Jesus. I think the Lord is working in us to get us to that point, that attitude, wanting him for his own sake. Uh, But again, that's all ground we've already covered. Um, In chapter 21, um, the specific cities then for the Levites are just being enumerated in kind of an orderly way. And so as we conclude here, it's a pretty long chapter, although I I, I don't have anything very profound to say about the particular cities as they're listed. And I'd rather spend the remainder of our time at the end of chapter 21, starting at verse 43, and think about this closing paragraph where it says, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. And so for all the work that still remained to be done for Israel, and for all the ensuing failures of Israel not carrying out that work properly... Um, this closing section kind of zooms out and considers that big picture again, that the Lord has kept all of his promises to Israel. He has done exactly what he said that he would do. They are in the land. They have taken possession of it. They have defeated the great armies that have come against them. Supernaturally, they've been wiped out as Israel's uh, army has, has prevailed by the almighty supernatural power of God. They have won such swift and widespread and decisive victories that it can be truly said that they have rest on every side. And what's the repeated qualifier in this section? Just as he had sworn to their fathers. All this is happening in fulfillment of God's promises long ago to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now it's coming true. And so the historian is emphasizing That everything that's happened in the conquest has happened according to promise. According to the promises of God. This is all the fulfillment of God's covenantal purposes. And the best part is the very last verse, where it says, Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed, all came to pass. Reminds me of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, that until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law. Those tiny pieces of letters will, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. God 
is a God of details. Take nothing more than these four chapters of Joshua to persuade us of that. God is a God of details. He cares about the little things. We saw that in the Shiloh survey, how it all took place in his presence as he personally oversaw the allotment that each tribe was to receive. But what's really wonderful about this ending is how it shows us that God is a God of details when it comes to keeping his promises. That what he says he will do, and not one word of it, will fail. And brothers and sisters, that God has not changed since the time of Joshua. He never changes. And what that means for you is that all the promises that God has made to you in Christ, of all of those promises, not one word is going to fail. Not one word. All of it is going to come to pass. Why? Because that's who he is. That's who he has always been. It's who he always will be. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Great is his faithfulness now and always and then and eternally. Uh, The greatest example of that so far in human history was, again, the coming of Christ. Uh, You think about all of the, the vast number of Old Testament promises and foreshadowings, not just the explicit predictions like of the prophets, uh, uh, which Jesus fulfilled a lot of those in great detail, um, but also the, the kind of pictures, the, the shadows that prefigured the, the person and the work of Jesus, that taught Israel through their national life to long for his coming. Not one word failed of all of God's promises of that Savior who was to come. They started promising way back in Genesis chapter 3. And then Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, here comes the seed of the woman who does indeed crush the serpent's head. That's just one, the first of many examples of those promises. Not one of them failed. They were kept in the coming of Jesus. Think about the way that Jesus himself, God the Son, come in the flesh, kept his promises. How Jesus kept his covenant with God the Father to the last detail and how he prayed. You remember, while I was with them, he prays to his Father in John 17, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost. Except the son of destruction, and, and that's Judas Iscariot. And even that was that the scripture might be fulfilled. Again, it was so that another promise could be kept. Think about in John 6, when he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. That's the promise of Jesus to you. If you come to him, he will not cast you out. He will embrace you and forgive you welcome you into his presence and bless you. And then don't forget how God the Father kept all of his promises to his son. After Jesus had suffered on the cross, all of that vast weight of the wrath of God against your sin and mine that we deserved. And then after he was buried in his tomb, what did God the Father do? He raised him up again. Why? Because he had promised to do it. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if God kept all these promises to Israel, if Christ kept all of his promises, if God kept the Father kept all of his promises to Christ, you can be sure, as the people of God living today in 2022, that all of those promises that he's made to you 
throughout the Bible about your future, about your inheritance that he's promised you in in Christ. He's going to keep those promises, and not one word of them will fail. All will come to pass, just as he promised, to the last detail for every one of us. And that is good news indeed for the people of God. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for helping us through this challenging section of Joshua. We thank you for the uh, special insights that are found into your character and your plan for your people um, in these uh, in, the, in this particular place in your word. And we ask that you would please, through your word, build up our faith, help us to trust you, help us to trust that our lives are not happening arbitrarily, randomly, that they are being guided by your skillful and wise and tender and loving and compassionate care and providence. Help us to rest in you and to have um, confidence for the future that not one word of all that you have said to us will fail. Everything will come to pass just as you've said it will. And Lord, in that confidence, um, we ask you would please help us to obey, to follow the way that you have called us to go out of gratitude for all that you have done for us in the Lord Jesus. And we ask all of these things in his name. Amen.